Morning again. Hey, little bit of uh, celebration uh, for those of you who don't know. There is a women's retreat next weekend. We don't even have to talk about events. I can just say there's women's, and you guys all go woo. Yeah. Anyway, uh, one point of celebration is it's been full, and then it was fuller, and then it was fuller, fuller. Every time I talk to Alice, she's like, "We're going to squeeze a few more people in." But anyway, that's awesome. Uh, but here's the cool thing. So many of the women who are going on a retreat are part of the team that serves your children on Sunday morning. And uh, in the past, I've had to put out a cry for help uh, because all the women are leaving. Guys, can you please step up? We need some people to work in children's. And when I talked to Lakeisha this week, she said, oh, no, we're all covered. They already stepped up. So kudos to you for stepping up. Awesome. All right. Now for the guys who's didn't step up. I don't want to shame you in any way. That's not my point. But I do want to say this. Your wife is going to retreat and you have children at home. Get up and come to church. All right. It's going to be a little man heavy next week, but come to church anyway. All right. We are in week six of our journey through the book of Genesis. Uh, Before we jump into the text, listen carefully. I want to say this. Today's message is PG-13. I'm going to do my best to use language that is not too descriptive, but uh, it is PG-13. Uh, the text and the message, it's just its sort of forcing our hand to talk about some things uh, that are for a mature audience. Now, here's the deal. Last time I made that announcement, not this morning, but the last time I made that announcement, uh, my friend Sterling, who was sitting right over there, as I was walking off the stage, said, don't worry, Pastor Doug, I slept through your whole message and didn't hear a thing. <laughs> so... That's an option. You can sleep through it. But if you have children uh, that are younger, we just would encourage you to take them to the program. We've got programming all the way through eighth grade happening all over the building. If you don't know where to take them, just stop out there and say, where do I take my child? And we'll make sure that we get them in. So PG-13 today. Uh, grab your Bibles. Turn to Genesis chapter 6. We're going to be reading the first eight verses. Uh, there is a Bible under your seat. If you need one, we encourage you to bring your Bible. If you are online, we encourage you to have a Bible in front of you. If you haven't bought a journal yet, we've sold over 400 of these, which kudos to you for that as well. That's awesome. Uh, but we have journals. They're only five bucks. It's a great deal. Can't go wrong. Uh, get a journal. Take notes during Sunday morning. It will help you to remember. It'll help you to engage with the text. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, you can keep the one under your seat. If you're online right now, thank you for joining us. If you don't own a Bible, come by the church anytime. We would love to give you a Bible of your very own. This is probably, probably one of the most bizarre sections of Scripture, uh, and it's probably one of the most debated passages of Scripture as well. Uh, Genesis 6, 1 through 8 kind of serve uh, as a vivid description of the depravity of man, and it's really setting up the desperate need for uh, a, a, a reset, or it's setting up the story of Noah and the ark, which we're going to cover later. Chapters 4, chapter 5, and the beginning of chapter 6 is the human story 
from Adam to Noah, it's a thousand years of human history. So we get these three short chapters, two genealogies, and then literally a, two paragraphs that cover uh, what's happened in the last thousand years of, of human history. Um, there's a lot that we don't know about that, but what we do know is that sin has brought widespread corruption and chaos to the earth. Uh, one thing I would say that this passage shows us is that we're really naive when we say things like, man, things have never been worse in the history of mankind. Trust me, if you've read the scriptures, if you've studied world history, uh, things may be bad, but that's it. We, we really can't say things have never been worse. I mean, all right, stand with me. I'm going to read Genesis 6, verses 1 through 8. It says, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. If you remember the genealogy that we read last week, it kept saying, and sons, and they had more sons and daughters. That's how we know this is a continuation of the same thought process. So it says, when man began to multiply on the face of the land, daughters were born to them. And the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for in he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Verse 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds in the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. Some of your passages might say, I regret that I have made them. Verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Lord, thank you for, for this passage. <clears throat> thank you for your word. Thank you for the story of grace. Thank you that you saw Noah. Thank you uh, that you hit the reset button. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. I pray this morning that everyone in this room, everyone on this broadcast would have a moment with you where they hear the living God speak to them. Because with just a word, everything can change. With just a word, you brought everything into creation. With just a word, you can speak over our lives and you can bring light into the darkness. You can bring calm into the chaos. So we just ask that you would speak, whether it's through my message or through the music or through the dedication of those beautiful babies or through a conversation in the lobby. Whatever you use, we just pray that you would speak. Thank you that you're a God that sees us that knows us, you know, every hair on our head, you knit us together in our mother's womb, and that you do desire to speak to us personally. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So last week, I expressed to you the challenge of preaching a genealogy, and this week, I get to preach about the Nephilim, so yeah. Uh, but here's what I'd say, just like the genealogies, if we slow down, if we really Listen, the Holy Spirit has something for every single person in this room, every person listening online, through these bizarre, peculiar verses. Verses 1 through 4 are 
hotly debated. There are very smart, very astute theologians, uh, very devoted Jesus followers that do not agree on who the sons of God actually are. The, they don't agree on, on what the 120 years represents. They don't agree on who the Nephilim were. They don't agree on who the mighty men of old and the men of valor were. But the most important revelation that we can glean from in Genesis is is what does it tell us about God and what does it tell us about people, mankind? So I'm encouraging you, and this is where we started this whole series, don't get into heated discussions. I love the discussions. I encourage you to have discussions, but don't get into arguments over young earth or old earth. Don't get into arguments about the age of the patriarchs. Don't get into arguments about who or what are the Nephilim or who or what are the sons of God. Those are all wonderful conversations, but in the end, the answer to all of those questions doesn't change the gospel. When you have conversations in your small group, when you have conversations with your friends, and it starts to get a little bit heated, I would encourage you to come back to this question. Why is it even in the Bible? Why do we have the story of creation in the Bible? It's to tell us that in the beginning, God created. It's not as much about how, it's about who and what he did. It's to say that, hey, this, this thing we call earth, this, our, our humankind, it's not an accident. It's not a cosmic accident. There is a God who spoke everything into creation. That's the heart of Genesis 1. So keep coming back in your conversations to the why. Why is it even in the scriptures? And we're going to see that in this passage as well. I found myself asking this week, think about this. Of all of the highlights that we could have from a thousand years of human history. This is Adam to Noah, a thousand years of human history of all of the highlights we could have. Why was this bizarre, confusing story chosen? And I think if you stay with me, the answer is going to surprise you. So we're going to start with verse 2. You got it open? It says, The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took any they chose. That word right here, this word attractive, uh, this is the 16th time that word has been used in the book of Genesis coming up to this, this moment right here. 16 times. It's the same word that's used of God when he sees his creation and he says, it is good. Right? He says, it is beautiful. It is attractive. It is, it is good. So God uses the word over and over. It is good. It is good. It is very good. And then when Eve is tempted in the garden, it says that she took the fruit and she held it in her hand and it was attractive to the eye. It was good. It was pleasing. It was beautiful. And so what we have is this, this picture, if you will, or a, a literary pattern that happens over and over in Scripture. So this is a literary pattern that we see in today's passage. The sons of God saw, right, that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took any they chose. I encourage you, if you're writing in your journal, to write this literary pattern. Because if you pay attention, you will see this pattern over and over and over in the scriptures, that they see that it's attractive, and then they either take it or they refuse to take it if it's something that God has promised to them. So it's a, it's a pattern we're going to see over and over. And what happens between attraction and action is where your spiritual journey is fleshed out. 
right? What you do in the space between determines obedience or disobedience. It determines blessing or curse. And the truth is, you have these moments all the time. Every day, multiple times a day, you can see what's attractive. And if you don't pause and ask God, then your action or your inaction may not be the very thing that God wants you to do. So chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, listen, is a warning to the Israelite people and to the future kings of the Israelites. Keep in mind, it is being written to a people who are about to come into the promised land, who are about to take the promised land, and God says to the Israelites through the, through the writings of Moses, he says, do not take foreign women as your spouse, right? And just so you know, that was not a, uh, that God was forbidding the mixing of bloodlines. It had nothing to do with bloodlines. It had everything to do with spiritual moorings. What he said is, don't take the foreign women as your wives who worship other gods because you will be led astray. You will be led to worship their gods and not Yahweh, right? So here we have this, this picture of the sons of God taking up with the daughters of men and chaos comes in the process. So the Israelites instead ignore the warning. They see that the other ites, you know what I mean by ites? Like the, the Canaanites and the Midianites and the Moabites, right? He, they see those women. They're attractive or beautiful. And they take them as their wives. And guess what? They are led astray to worship foreign gods. They didn't pause between attraction in action. They didn't consider God's clear instructions. The warning of Genesis 6 should have been blinking loud and clear, right? So think about this. Solomon. Solomon saw foreign women, hundreds and hundreds of foreign women as attractive, and he took them as his wife. And the scripture says, and Solomon's heart was led astray. Think about King David, as he was on that roof, you remember this story? He's on the roof and he looks across and he sees Bathsheba and she's attractive. Same word, she's beautiful. And it says that David took her. But what if David had paused between attraction and action? What if he did just for a moment say, God, what am I supposed to do? I'm pretty sure he said, get off the roof and take a shower. Right? There, there would have been a clear decision to honor God, to do what God wants. Now, here's the amazing thing. You know, we, we've talked about it in Genesis, but you're going to see the scriptures. The story of scripture is a story of God's grace. David and Bathsheba are part of the messianic line, even though there's a screw up. But even though there's grace, there are incredible catastrophic consequences for David's behavior. Listen, multiple children die because of David's sin. The kingdom is split because of David's sin. So back to the text. It says, the sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive and they took them. There's a lot of debate, more than we could ever cover, about who are the sons of God in verse two. It's really important that you hear this. The ancient world, the original readers of this passage and really all of the Old Testament readers 
and all of the New Testament readers, even some of the writers of the Old Testament, believed these sons of God to be fallen angels, God-like creatures, not God, but, but not human either. And there's, there's a strong case that can be made for this view. If you look at that phrase, sons of God, it's used elsewhere in the Old Testament. Every other time the same phrase is used, it's describing angels, right? And as wild as it sounds to us in our, the way we, we understand the spiritual world, and as wild as it sounds to us, the ancient world wouldn't even have given it a second thought. They just took it at face value. Right? And the fact that I want you to hear part of it is that the spiritual realm and the physical realm, they're both just as, the spiritual realm is just as real as the physical realm. Right? And we see in scripture angels that appear as humans, always as men. Right, But we see them eating, we see them fighting in battles, we see them having conversations. If you read the story of Sodom, there's angels there and the, the other men see the angels and they want to have sex with the angels. So, so what we know is the physical and the spiritual are both real. But the other thing I want you to hear, and this is part of the PG-13, but part of the occult, part of the worship of the ancient fertility gods was to have sexual encounters with spiritual beings. It was part of the, the worship in the ancient days. It was part of the Roman occultic worship. And it's part of the occult today. That there is a desire to have some type of encounter with spiritual beings that is sexual in nature. Now, whether or not that, that produced Offspring is something that can be talked about, something that can be debated. And I'm not saying that it did. What I am saying is the occult is real, right? And something has gone amiss in all of this. And what I want you to hear, the warning is, do not play with the occult. The demonic forces, the forces of evil are real and they are not something to be trifled with. So the ancient world would read sons of God and just think God-like non-human angels. But there, to be absolutely fair, there is other possibilities. Another way of interpreting the passage is that it is a continuation of chapter 4 and chapter 5. So chapter 4, if you were here, Wayne talked about it, is, is all about the, the line of Adam's family tree that comes from Cain. You remember Cain killed Abel, and so now there's this this branch off of Adam's tree and all of the sin and, and the generational sin that takes place. And then you get to chapter 5 and it's the branch of Adam's tree that is from Seth. Seth is part of the messianic line. You can make a pretty strong case that the sons of God are the Sethians, if you will, and the daughters of men are the Canaanites, right? And so there's this picture of the two groups meeting together, the two groups taking, and again, it's a prohibition because they're going to be led astray. They're going, their hearts are going to be turned away from God. So wherever you land on your understanding or the way you would interpret the passage, the central message is absolutely clear. Sex has been perverted. Marriage and procreation has been distorted. And sexual sin is running rampant. Sounds like a very familiar thing to me. It says, and they took as their wives any they chose. If you read this in the original language, it's very clearly written to talk about multiple wives or what we would call polygamy. And what I want you to hear is polygamy was never 
God's intent. Uh, we had a pastor here quite a while ago. His name was Sam Jackson. And Sam's the one that taught me this. He said, Doug, if you, if you go back and you just read every story that involves multiple wives, every single story that involves multiple wives, it's always problematic and in most cases catastrophic. God's design for marriage was and still is a lifelong covenant relationship between one man and one woman, and sex is only permitted within the confines of that covenant relationship. And Satan will do anything and everything he can to distort marriage and to distort sex. He takes what is good, what is attractive, what is beautiful, sex, and he stains it and he distorts it. There's a reason. Satan was there. He was in the garden, right? And he heard what God said to Eve. He heard what God said to him. And, and he heard God say, from her seed will come the Messiah. From her seed will become the one who will kill you. He will crush your head. And so from that moment, Satan has been at war against the woman, it actually says that, that her, her offspring will be at war with his offspring. There is this picture in these opening verses. The sons of God pairing up with the daughters of men and chaos ensuing. Real quick, let's look at verse 3. I'm going to hit the next couple of verses just to give you some uh, alternative understandings, your possible understanding. It says, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for his flesh in his days shall be 120 years. Lots of debate about what the 120 years are. There's two schools of thought mostly. Uh, this is either a restriction on the length of life, that going forward in short order, People will only live to be 120 years old. Uh, the other option is this is saying that in 120 years, there's going to be a flood and everyone's going to get wiped out except for Noah's family. I tend to fall in the first one mostly because when it talks about uh, the life and the breath, it's actually the same phrase that is the breath of life. Um, but I also would contend that I think God has the ability to speak in utterance that has double meaning. He's pretty smart. He could do that. So maybe it's a little bit of both. But either way, the passage is telling us that life is a gift. That without God's breath of life, we're all dust. Right? Okay, look at verse 4. I know I'm going through this fast, but I promise I'm going to come back to some application. Verse 4 says, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. The Hebrew word or the Hebrew language reads more like this. While there was all this commingling going on between the sons of God and the daughters of men, there were also Nephilim on the earth. It's not saying because of the commingling there were Nephilim. Now, it may mean that, but it's not saying that. It's basically, it's not a causal thing. It's a this is happening while this is happening thing, okay? So, and here's the deal. Nephilim means giant. In those days, some of your passages, if you have a different translation, may even say there were giants uh, on the earth. But they... They're not giants like we envision in a fantasy novel. You know, maybe you're a Lord of the Rings fan. They're not like those kind of giants. Uh, they're not the fee-fi-fo-fum giant that, you know, you climb the beanstalk to get to. I think that's the right story. Yes, thank you for that. Anyway, these were just substantially larger, stronger men than the norm. 
substantially larger. The most famous of these would probably be Goliath. And I don't know if you know this, but if you go back and read the story of David and Goliath, the Israelites believed Goliath's size and his strength and his fighting ability was because he was a descendant of the gods, that they perceived him to be a Nephilim. So think about this just for a minute. If a man stood eight foot tall in those days, and we know that that Goliath was even taller than that, but if a man stood eight foot tall, he would be at minimum three feet taller than the average person. So this is a picture to give you a little bit of a perspective. This is Shaquille O'Neal, for those of you who don't know. But look, most people wouldn't call Shaquille O'Neal a giant, or at least not in the traditional fantasy novel way that we use giant. We might call him that just because he really is a big dude, right? (laughs) But if Shaquille O'Neal had lived in the ancient days, he would have been called a giant. I remember reading the story of when Shaquille O'Neal was discovered. His parents were, uh, his dad was military. Uh, guy was on the military base. I think if I remember right, he was in seventh grade and he was dunking the basketball. He was just head and shoulders above everybody else. My point being, like, if you're going to grow to be eight feet tall or near eight feet tall or seven feet tall, it, it doesn't happen in your late 20s. Like, you're abnormally large early. And so what would happen is they would find these abnormally large individuals for whatever reason that they were large and they would train them to be military. They would train them to be stronger. They would work out. And what would happen is because they were great in hand-to-hand battle, because they were three feet taller than everybody else, they became famous. They became kings. They became leaders and they took many wives. They became the men of old and the men of valor. The point is, If you think about the story of David and Goliath, I think you can make a case that David was aware of Genesis 6, right? David doesn't see a Nephilim. He doesn't see a a man that's descended from the gods. He sees a man who's defiled the living God and needs to be exterminated, right? The point of Genesis 6, 1 through 4 is God is bigger and more powerful than the Nephilim. The Nephilim, the men of valor, the men of old, they're no match for God. With just a word, God wipes them out. But there's another reason that God instructs Moses to write these passages, write this bizarre story to the people of Israel. All of this is, all of these different views, it's, it, all of this conjecture, it's fun, right? It's, it's interesting. If any of you want to grab a coffee and, and talk about these, I would love to. But really, the heart of these passages is verses 5 through 8, not verses 1 through 4, where we spend all of our time debating. And verses 5 through 8 says this, The Lord saw the wickedness of men. It was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Let me read that again. That's a... That's a doozy. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. It's a colorful portrait of total depravity. The immediate application is without Jesus, without God moorings, Every 
intention of thought of our heart is only evil continually. Go back to the literary pattern. We see, we see what's attractive, and then there's action or inaction. Without God, without the Holy Spirit, without God's direction, without God's compass, without the, the work of Jesus in our lives, the, the movement between attraction and action and inaction will always be sinful. We are sinful beings. I know this isn't a popular feel-good sort of thing to say, but it's the truth. This was a huge epiphany raising my children. There was a pastor's wife here long before I was ever on staff at Grace, and she said, you know, Doug, uh, your children aren't perfect. They're sinners. You see, I, I thought when my kids were born, they were perfect, and my job was not to screw them up, right? And I'm telling you, I know it's not popular, but every child that was on this stage is a little sinner. And if you've lived with them long enough, you've seen it. And left to their own devices, they will make the wrong decision. That's why we're told to train them up in the way they should go so that when they get older, they don't depart from it. Because left to their own devices, they will make bad choices. Even when you train them, sometimes they make bad choices, right? It's our propensity to sin. And again, I know that's not super popular, but it's, it's the truth. Without God without pausing to consider between attraction and action, we will make dangerous, destructive decisions. The scripture says that Yahweh, that's what that all L-O-R-D, Lord saw that the wickedness and the evil, and it grieved him to his heart. Sin grieves the heart of God. God cares about his creation. God cares about his people. And God knows that sin always has a price. What do I say to you all the time? Sin never reaps a profit. It always has a price. God knows that families are destroyed because of sin, that, that friendships are ruined because of sin, that, that hearts are broken because of sin. Verse 6, the Lord saw the wickedness and evil and it grieved him to his heart. The grief that God feels is rooted in love. It's not anger, it's love. Think about it this way. The closest thing I can think to trying to, to have an example of this is, think about a parent, a mother or a father who has a child caught up in a destructive addiction. And they're watching their child make bad decision after bad decision Right? And they're watching their child's life spin out of control and all the pain and hurt that comes with it. But they're also watching all the collateral damage that takes place when, when that person is making it and it breaks their heart. That's what this is a picture. Is God's heart is broken because he can see the collateral damage that sin brings. Application is you can never sin in isolation. Sin always has a ripple effect. And sometimes it affects people that have nothing to do with the sin itself. We lost a young lady here just a few weeks ago because someone decided to drink and get behind the wheel of her car. The family is devastated. She's gone. Sin always has a cost. It never reaps a prophet. And God is seeing this, 
this ripple effect of the sin and it grieves his heart. So the question we got to ask ourselves is, he's God. Why doesn't he just stop it? If it makes him so sad, why does he allow it to go on? Why is he letting the sons of God marry the daughters of men? And the reason is because without free will, there is no love. The tree of good and evil had to exist in the garden if there was going to be love. Adam and Eve had to have the ability to choose to walk with God or to choose not to walk with God. If you don't have a choice, it's coercion or it's oppression. And God knows that. So we have free will. We have the free will to choose. And the truth is you have to choose all the time between attraction and action. Every day, multiple times a day, you have to make the decision, the choice to either follow God or do things your own way. The passage is making it clear. Sin matters to God. Back to the question that I asked at the beginning. Of all the possible highlights for the first thousand years of human history, why was this story chosen? Because it is a timely and spe very specific instructions for the Israelites. God wanted them to see and understand he is the only one to be worshipped and revered. He alone is powerful and mighty. When you look at the literary pattern that I gave you, saw, attractive, action, and inaction. And what I love about that pattern, if we can put it up on the screen, is it's, it's not always about restrictions, right? God isn't just a God who's given us a whole bunch of don't-do lists. God is also a God of blessing. God is also saying, I have great things for you. So, so that's why I put the inaction here. Sometimes the, the thing that we don't do is we don't take hold of the very thing that God is, is offering us. Remember the story of the Israelites? Right? Like, get this. They leave Egypt. Moses writes Genesis on their way to the promised land. So they've been, they've, they've been given this passage from, from uh, Genesis chapter 6, right? And they're coming into the promised land. And they go into the promised land. Moses says, okay, we're here. He sends in the 40 spies or the 12 spies. Remember this? They're in the land for 40 days. They come back. They have luscious fruit. They have all this stuff. And they're like, it really is a land flowing with milk and honey. It's amazing. It is the promised land but right they see it it's attractive to them but they refuse to take the land fear wins the day the very thing God promised them they see it as attractive and they fail to take hold of it and you know what they saw they saw Nephilim let me read it for you so this is numbers 13 so the 10 spies out of the 12 say, we can't go in there. They say, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and large. And besides, we saw descendants of Anak there. We're not able to go up against these people. They are stronger than we are. And all of the people that we saw there, get that, they say, all of the people that we saw in that area are of great height. And we saw the Nephilim, sons of Anak who came from the Nephilim. And we seemed ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seem to them. In their fear, they resort to exaggeration. All of the people in the land were giants. I'm pretty sure there were probably children, non-giants there. But all of the people are giants. They actually say the land devours its inhabitants. 
Application, fear will always make your foe look larger than they are. Fear will always make your foe look larger than they are. Just to uh, put my nerd card on the wall here, J.R. Tolkien says, he that runs counts every enemy twice. God inspires Moses to write in Genesis 6, the Nephilim, the men of old, they're not to be feared, they're not to be revered, they're not to be worshipped. They are all under the sovereign reign and rule of God. This ancient culture had elevated these men to God-like figures, these kings of old. They were feared and they were actually worshipped. They would have known the story of Galgamesh, who was considered to be two-thirds human and one-third non-human. That that non-human part gave him great size and great long life and he was an incredible warrior. And God is saying, Galgamesh and all of his kin are no match for me. I will blot them out with one blow. Verse 5 says, The Lord saw the wickedness of men was great in the earth. Every intention and thought of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. But as we've seen throughout our study of Genesis, Genesis is a story of grace. And God decides to hit the reset button. He decides to begin again with a new Adam. Verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. We're going to spend the next four weeks exploring the story of Noah and his family. We're going to see that it really is a story of grace it's a story of God's relentless pursuit of us. So the bizarre story in Genesis chapter 6, it's a warning and it's an invitation. That when you see what's attractive, pause. Ask God, what is it you desire for me? Is this something you want me to take or is this something you want me to walk away from. Sometimes it's the very promises of God, the very gospel itself. God offers us the gospel. Some of you are sitting in this room and you've heard the story of Jesus and you say it sounds attractive, it sounds beautiful, but I'm afraid. I'm afraid of what I'm going to have to give up. I'm afraid of how it's going to affect me. I'm afraid of losing control. Whatever that fear is, God is saying, look, I am bigger than the Nephilim. I have a promise for you. Will you take the promise? Some of you have already taken hold of stuff that you know you're not supposed to have, whether it's an addiction, maybe you're addicted to porn. It might even just be an unhealthy pursuit of wealth. There's nothing wrong with wealth, but an unhealthy pursuit of wealth can get you in a lot of trouble. It can look attractive, but cause a lot of problems. Maybe it's an unhealthy desire to be popular. It looks so good to be popular like that person, and so it's changed your behaviors. You see something that seems to be attractive to you and you move towards it. Jesus is saying, give it to me. Right? Th those things that you've taken hold of that are, that are holding you back and creating chaos in your life, you're saying, give it all to me. And then he says, I want to do more than you can ask, think, or imagine. I think one of the things I just want to leave you with is God knows what the giants are in your life, whatever the Nephilim is in your life. And he just wants you to know he's bigger. With just a word, 
you can wipe them out. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this bizarre story. Thank you that as we sit with a story like this, that you just open our minds and our hearts to your truth. That we don't have to agree on some of the debated points to see that sin creates havoc. And that you have promised us something better. But I pray for the people in this room that just, they see the beauty of Jesus. They see the promise of Jesus, but they're hesitant. I pray that even today, even in this moment, that they would just say, yes, I want the promise. Lord, help us to be a people that walk with you, that see what's attractive and then do what you call us to do, not what we want to do. We call this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, the group of people that prayed for you before the service. Uh, someone is struggling with a neck injury. We'd love to pray for you in that. Uh, someone is just dealing with a lot of worry and anxiety. We'd love to pray for you. Someone is just wants more joy in their life. We'd love to pray that. And someone needs to just trust Jesus as their personal Savior. If you don't know Jesus and you just want to know, like, what is that thing Pastor Doug was talking about, just come down. we got people who are trained, love to pray with you and talk to you. If you're online right now and you need somebody to pray with you, call anytime during the week and just ask for one of the pastors. We would pray for you as well. Come back next week, and we're going to spend four weeks looking at the incredible story of Noah and the flood. Bless you.